Father, we just thank you for this day and just this full room of voices, God, just lifting up praise to you. We thank you today, especially, Lord, for Pastor Frank and just his presence, even though it was a short time here in Bowling Green, God, just the impact that he had through you, Lord. We just pray that as we go through our service today, Lord, that we could uh, just quiet our minds and quiet our hearts so that we could draw close to you, Lord. In your name, amen. So I think it's interesting whenever we have these little phrases that we've kind of built into Christianity and, you know, usually they're, they're, they're based somewhere in something that's in the Bible when people use these phrases. I mean, people didn't just like create them up out of nothing. Um, but sometimes the problem with a little phrase is that you end up actually missing a part about why what Christ did was so significant, why the things of the Bible are so significant. And in doing that, sometimes what you end up doing is you end up, you know, risking projecting something to people who may not have a relationship with Jesus or people who may be kind of the, the unchurched world and maybe throwing something in front of them that just doesn't make any sense. And one example of that that I think is when you hear somebody say something about, well, all sins are equal. And I look at that and I say, really? I mean, does that, does that really, I mean, just think about for a second, get outside of kind of your church Sunday school answer frame of mind and just, just think about that phrase for a second that all sins are equal. So you mean to tell me that if I were to sit here and lie about uh, what my wife looks like in an outfit, that that's somehow equal to going and killing a bunch of people. So the punchline of that was going to be that one of them leads to death and the other one is serial murder. So you beat me to it, Shelby. Good job. Oh, boy. Well, any train I was on just got derailed. So, um, But, I mean, it really does, like, that doesn't seem to resonate with the way that we see the world around us. And one of the things, as I've gone through and studied, like, time and time again, different things in the Bible, is that... The way God created this earth is remarkably logical. Like, things really do fit together. And so often, the things that don't seem to make sense maybe seem like they don't make sense because we're in the midst of it. We're in the middle of it. You know, this is one of the reasons why there's a big difference between an individual who is sitting on a field playing a game versus somebody who's a coach that's sitting back looking at the whole thing. The whole reason why you end up having individuals in sports like football that will actually be coaches that will sit up in a press box is because they can see the whole thing playing out. And so even though a particular route or a particular slant or something may not make sense to a football player sitting on a field, to the coach, they can see the entire plan rolling out. And so, so often what I end up seeing is that if something in the Bible we look at and we say, that just doesn't make any sense, then usually what that means is, okay, well, maybe the answer isn't something that can be found on a coffee mug verse or on a picture posted on Instagram. Maybe it's something that actually requires that we think about a little bit more complicated because I would posit you this, and any individual who would say that, you know, I don't really have anything to do with this whole Jesus thing or religious thing or any, any of that, I would posit this to you. If you grant me for a second that God really is who we say he is and that Christ is who he said he is, then doesn't it make sense that something that has the implications and the magnitude of salvation and the redemption of sins and eternity and all that might be something that is a little bit more complicated than what can be sorted out in a five-minute conversation? 
Doesn't that just kind of make sense? And so let's go back to this phrase for a second that to me doesn't make sense when you say it to the, the rest of the world, that every sin is equal. Well, I would look at that and say, really? Well, then you're going to have to sit here and argue with some things that Jesus said. Because the reality is we end up seeing that the weight of certain people's sin actually is greater than others. Now, keep that phrase in the back of your mind because we're going to see where there is, where that phrase actually kind of comes from and why it's actually more significant than it may sound. So when we look in John chapter 19, verses 10 through 12, we end up seeing this. Now, this is kind of after the events of the arrest and when we see Christ talking about, uh, you know, what's going on between him and Pilate and this interaction that he has and all the events that have happened during that night up to this point. So we see this. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said to Jesus. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So what's interesting here is you have Jesus seeming to actually compare what Pilate is doing to what Judas did when he talks about the one who handed him over. This is something you can actually see in examples of like classic literature in the centuries and centuries and centuries following the life of Christ. Because you actually see individuals and different things like, you know, I've mentioned uh, works like Dante's Inferno and stuff like that where you see nobody saying that Pilate was like innocent here. But at the same time, there almost being this idea of like a lesser sin that Pilate did because he was kind of like almost unwittingly brought into it, so to speak. It was a sin. It was something, uh, you know, clearly, if you can imagine this, uh, condemning the uh, Lord and Savior of all mankind to death, generally not a great thing. Right. Uh, you know, so it's pretty hard to square that that's not a, that there's not some kind of sin there. But uh, at the same time, somehow that seems different than Judas actively conspiring and turning over Jesus to other individuals to be uh, to be put to death. So you see, there actually is something to the idea of certain sin being worse to others. Now, the problem with this is that some people have taken this idea to a bad extreme. If you wonder where ideas of things like purgatory and all that come from, you end up getting stuff that comes very similarly out of these thoughts. That the idea is that there's some sins that you know maybe are uh, too weighty for God to completely entirely overlook, and that some are lesser, and so that we have to sit here and rack and stack different sins. But yet, here's what I would say: it's pretty difficult to square that there's not a greater weight of some sin versus other sin. The real question and the thing that we should really be interested in is, does it matter? So in other words, the thing that the rest of the world sees is the rest of the world sees that there's, you know, sins here, sins here, sins here, sins here, and that, you know, some people try to say that like all sin is sin, uh, but the reality is some sins are, are worse than others, but the difference between them is irrelevant. And the reason why this becomes so significant is because this is what helps keep all of us in check. It helps keep all of us humble. Because while we may look at certain sins that maybe we think we do and then sit here and be quick to look at another individual and say, well, your sin is, is heavier, it's more weighty. The real question there is what I just mentioned. It, it's irrelevant that your sin is greater or less or whatever than somebody else. Because the reality is the penalty for sin is what? Death, right? And here's the deal. Death is a binary. It doesn't matter how much death you want. Once you're dead, you're dead. 
And so it's kind of irrelevant. We end up seeing Romans 3.23, exactly, uh, you know, the... That, that all of us have sinned, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So you see, all of us have sinned, and so if that's the case, then it might mean that one person may be able to flatter themselves as, you know, I haven't done anything that bad, but it doesn't matter because all have sinned, and the penalty for sin is death. One of the other things that uh, I started looking through as I was doing this study was something that pops up in Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 through 5. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you have used to live when you were, followed, when you were following the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest of us, we were by na nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. What we end up seeing here, and what stuck out to me so much of this, is that idea of, by nature, individuals who sin deserving of wrath. That there being something that we can't get away from. So, you know, it, it, it can sound, you know, people like to, you know, point out that it, it can sound a little bit, uh, you know, too judgy maybe or harsh maybe to say that, like, everyone deserves some kind of death. But I would look at that and say, is that, is that really such a controversial thought? Is it really such a crazy thought to say that everybody has done something in their life, either in thought, in your word, or in your deed, that, you know, has some kind of inkling of turning away from God? Remember what sin is. Sin isn't some magical list of things that you did and therefore you're a bad person. It's not a matter of you did something that, you know, makes uh, somebody, you know, clutch their pearls in the church and say, well, how dare a good Christian do something like that. Sin is acting in a way that tears us away from looking at what God has called us to do in our life. And now that is a very, very expansive, uh, uh, very expansive definition there you know, uh, what God has called us to do. There's lots of things in there that do not interfere and do not conflict with our ability to follow through with our, uh, follow through with our, our, our calling. I think about a youth I had one time when I was doing youth ministry who came up to me when we were talking about God calling us to different things in life. And I was, I was, I was mentioning that, you know, the priority, the number one thing, if you think about all the things going on in your life, number one should be focusing on what God has called you to do. And he looked at me and he came up to me and it's kind of funny because he said, now, it, I mean, if that's the case, like, does that mean I can't play basketball? And I kind of looked at him and said, what do you mean you can't play basketball? And he's like, well, I mean, if the, the only things I'm supposed to focus on are what God has called me to do, then, uh, you know, then, 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 I mean, basketball might not be part of it. And I said, okay, so first of all, maybe, maybe God called you to, I don't know what God called you to do. I can't tell you what God called you to do. But second of all, as long as it doesn't interfere, like, go do it, you know? If you want to sit here and, you know, grab a Mountain Dew and drink a Mountain Dew, like, God's divine plan for you probably doesn't depend on you choosing water versus Mountain Dew, right? So, like, go enjoy your Mountain Dew. Go play basketball. Go do whatever your thing is. All it's saying is that there is a, there's a series of, of priorities. And the first thing we should be looking at is, who has God called me to be? 
What has God called me to do? And I'd be willing to bet you that what you're not going to find in there are things that go completely against the nature of Christ himself as he sat here and walked on this earth, which is like being super judgy about people and like being really mean to people and getting together in churches and like hoarding all of your resources and things like that. I'd be willing to bet you that's not necessarily what you're called to do because it'd be counter to the way we see like God acting in the Bible. But we need to focus on, you know, where he has put us, the people he's put in our lives. And so what is a sin ends up becoming anything that pulls us away from that, things that cause us to focus more on ourselves than on other people, and things that cause us to focus more on what we would like to see and what our will is rather than God's will. This is where you get in this really interesting conversation of is it possible for someone to do something entirely within the safe bounds of Jesus or the church and it to actually be a sin? And I think what you come down to is absolutely yes. Is anybody going to argue that there are not churches and religious people and religious leaders who don't spend a lot more time trying to draw the spotlight on themselves than trying to draw the spotlight on the needs of the people around them and on the community and on the people who have been othered? It absolutely happens, and that too is a sin. So what we end up saying here is that it doesn't matter whether you're somebody who is considered a drag of society or you're somebody who flatters yourself as being the most pious individual to possibly walk this earth. Because the reality is that regardless of the weight of your sin, all of it is deserving of death. And all of it being deserving to death means that from that perspective, it's really the penalty of all sin is the same. So that's really almost a more accurate way to think about this little churchy phrase. One of the things that I think about, I think about the idea of, you know, dead is dead, is I think about people who try to bring up these statistics sometimes that you'll hear about, um, uh, uh, you know, nuclear stockpiles of different countries. And you've probably heard, you know, especially with the, all, uh, the, the war in Ukraine with Russia and whatnot, people bring up and say, well, you know, uh, Russia could destroy the world this many times over, and that's more times than the U.S. could destroy the world over, and that's more times than China could destroy the world over. And, and the thing that's funny about those statistics is you only really need to blow up the earth once. And then after that, it kind of doesn't matter how many times you can do it, because you can do it once. There's only one. And in the same way, it, it, it doesn't matter how many times over we deserve death. Death is death. Now, that being said, that leads to this very interesting next question which is okay well if that's the case then now what exactly did Christ do when he came and what is the sufficiency of what Christ did on Easter to our lives because what I want you to think about is this is we oftentimes think about you know Christ coming and, and, we, and we kind of we kind of connect the endpoints of God coming to forgive us of our sins and lump that in with crucifixion on the cross. But there's kind of two different mechanisms going on here that really talk about how crazy the gift of grace really is in our lives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9-10, through 10, we see this. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. <clears throat> to me, what this flies straight in the face of are individuals both who are religious, who like to try to flaunt their piety, as if to say that I know that I'm a child of God because look at how, look at how much I pray more than my contemporaries. 
Look at how much scripture I can quote at you. Look at how much louder I sing or how much, out act, how much more active I am than you in my church. And people who like to heap those on themselves as if somehow that makes them sufficient. And the reality is that what we see in all these shows of strength is not Christ coming to the forefront. Because what we see Paul saying right there to the church of Corinth is that in his weakness is where Christ is shown the most. It's kind of one of the great dichotomies of our, of our faith is that on the one hand, you, don't, you, you want to stay away from sin. You want to stay away from the things that weaken our faith and that diminish our soul and the things that cause us to live in a way that we don't want to live. You want to stay away from those things. And so you try as hard as you can, and when you can do that, you kind of celebrate in the sense of perseverance. But yet also, when you find yourself looking at it and saying, I can't meet that bar. I can't be that person that memorizes the entire Bible cover to cover. And I can't be that person that does all the things over at church. And I can't make all the time for things and all that. And I know that I'm supposed to do better. I know I need to have a better prayer life. I know I'm supposed to be better. But in that weakness, that's where Christ is also magnified. So just as you can celebrate in the joy of your perseverance when you are strong, then the same way you can celebrate in the perseverance of Christ when you are weak. It is this, this amazing, like, no-lose situation of having a relationship with God. And it's, it's such a tragedy when you see individuals who are religious that want to try to break that down, that want to try to look at the celebrating the endurance and the perseverance while at the same time overlooking the glorification of Christ through our weakness. Looking at individuals and saying, well, you know, we, we would like for you to be a part of this church, but maybe once you work through a few things. And, you know, we would like for you to get more involved, but maybe only after you've kind of gone through our procedure of, like, walking to the front of a church and all that. You know, maybe then you could participate in a, in a team or a committee or something like that. You know, when we see individuals who are religious go up to other individuals that don't yet have a relationship with Christ and say, and say you know, you really need to be acting this way. You really need to be acting that way. This idea of bashing people over the head with the, the image of piety while at the same time overlooking the person who came and died on a cross for the sole purpose of making your piety completely irrelevant. That to me is what becomes such a crime when we see individuals that you know want to basically, whether it's a literal concept of purgatory or whether they want to create some social purgatory in their lives with other people that you need to do this in order to be fully accepted by the church. You need to do this in order to be fully accepted by other Christians. That is something that completely works against what Christ did on the cross. And in doing that, the irony is it causes that individual doing that to sin because they are working against the will of God. Because the will of God that we see as evidence through the life of Christ is to die on a cross, not so that select individuals who were still devout in the crowd and you know still hung around with Jesus could be saved, but so that the people who actively spat at Christ and cursed at Christ and celebrated his death so that those individuals could be saved. So it is the worst among us and in their lives and through their redemption that we end up seeing Christ being glorified the most. And so it's in fact in those individuals that we should be staring at, not the individuals who claim to be the religious elite, that we should be staring at to see the greatest evidence of Christ working in our lives. And that should impact how we interact with people.
It should interact our willingness to open our arms to people who do feel like they're othered and people who feel like they've been pushed away. People who even feel like that through their own experiences with churches have been told that you know they're not good enough or devout enough or that the issue is with them. Those are exactly, precisely the individuals that we should be reaching out to because the reality is those are the individuals that Christ would have reached out to. And so then we have to ask ourselves, well, if that's the case and there's this gift of grace, then is it the case that everybody by default is just, bam, saved? Well, it's a gift. Gift has to be accepted. Now, accepted doesn't mean qualification. Like, accepting does not mean that there is a barrier for entry or a cost. And that's important to know because, I mean, I think sometimes what happens, you know, especially because we have different, like, within the church and within our culture, we have different, like, traditions and stuff like that. Like, in this church, you know, we've never, we've never made somebody, like, walk up to the front of something before they want to get baptized, right? And, you know, and, and that's fine. I don't have a problem with people who want to do that. It's your tradition. Go have your tradition. But I think sometimes what happens is through the way that we end up projecting Christ and religion and things like that, we end up seeing something that looks an awful lot like a transaction. Like it's a gift, but you have to pay this token before you can accept the gift. And that's not really what it is. It's just accepting it. And so it's not a matter of saying that you have to do something and pay something before you accept grace. It is looking at and saying, how do you go up to something like God and say, I want to accept your gift? How do you do that? The reason why we talk about confession, why we talk about redemption, is because these aren't things that are done because they're a barrier for entry. It's our way of affirmatively going to somebody and taking the gift. So it's important to keep that in mind because once again, confession is not designed to be something that's a bludgeon that beats you over the head to say, okay, now you've been beaten sufficiently and now you can be saved. It's a matter of saying that I am demonstrating that I am willing to accept this gift. And so I, I'm, I'm going to accept it, and I'm going to try to foster it and grow it and all that. And th those are things that are downstream of accepting the gift. But the acceptance of it is acknowledging that I, I need the gift. I, I do. I, I need this gift of grace because I can't help myself. This is what we end up saying when we see people actually doing confession, people asking for forgiveness. Not a transactional thing, but something of us acknowledging that I could use this gift. This is a very good gift. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-9, through 9, we see if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When I hear this, the thing that I keep going to in my mind is the fact that, you know, growing up, it's, you know, for like a, like a hot minute, I'm, you know, growing up, I was in an Episcopal church, but for most of the time that I can remember growing up, I was in a Lutheran church, and I, I'm certain that, uh, I actually know that a lot of liturgical churches kind of have very similar things, but in some churches you end up having a thing that's called like a confession of sins, that everybody will kind of do and utter together, and, you know, it can, it can seem like very, um, uh, you know, kind of kind of overly old school religious and everything, and it kind of is, and if anybody's worrying, don't worry, I'm not going to make us all do it right now. Um, but it is something that when you really look at it, you kind of say, what I like about this is that sometimes I think it's hard to know how do you approach a God that has offered you this thing and confess what you have done? Like, what, what do you say? What do you think? Like, what does that, what does it even look like? And it becomes hard to have the words to do something like that. Even me, I, 
I have no problem running my mouth and writing things, but it can be hard to put adequately how you really feel and how you really think. And so I know that in like the Lutheran church, they put together this order of confession and, and there's this thing that everybody will say together. And when they say it, it's cribbing from these different pieces of scripture. And this is what the entire congregation ends up saying together. They say, well, you know what? I'm going I'm to start at the at kind of like the beginning of this thing. Cause I mean, again, I, I think it, it words it kind of well. Uh, in the beginning, the, the pastor says, In the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. If we say we sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then the congregation says together, We confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. And what I... I like so much about that is not all the stuff in the very beginning of it and the stuff kind of at the beginning of the congregation says, even though that, that's good, that talks about like, we've done this wrong, we've done bad things, and we've, you know, we, things that we've done, things that we should have done and we didn't do. In, in all these ways, we have things in our life that we're not the most proud of. But it's that very last line when we end up saying that the whole point of this is forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. It is the fact that the whole purpose of forgiveness is not to tell you how bad of a person you were. The hope and the intent here is that you already realize that by virtue of accepting this gift that there are things in your life that you go like, yeah, that's not great. You know, some of it's real bad, some of it's not all that bad, but the bottom line, there's some stuff that's not great in there. The whole purpose of asking for forgiveness is getting to that end part so that we can be renewed and so that we can walk in Christ's ways, that there's joy and that there's rebirth and there's life at the end of that confession. But that being said, I didn't want to focus specifically on the confession part because the whole point of this message is focusing on the idea that Christ truly is sufficient. There is no amount of any qualification that needs to be added. There's no amount of extra ritual that needs to be followed. There's no amount of cultural whatevers that need to be out there. You are forgiven by the grace of Christ and through nothing else. There was a, a clip that I saw recently of a speaker that was, uh, that was talking, and he was, he was talking about an interaction that uh, one of his pastors has had back in the 80s with... Uh, uh, an individual at like a, a youth thing. And this guy went up to him, this kid went up to this pastor and said, you know, hey, yeah, if I, if I come to Christ, like that's the problem. It's like, if I've come to Christ, like, like I got to stop smoking pot, right? And he said that, because especially this is in the 80s, you know, so I mean, this is something where he said it, like definitely thinking like this would be kind of one of those like pearl clutching uh, kind of moments of this pastor, right? But the pastor kind of looked at him and said, no. And the guy said, no, no, like, I got it. You're an old guy. Maybe you don't understand. Pot, like marijuana. Like, like marijuana. If I have to stop smoking marijuana if I come to Christ. And he said, no. And then apparently the kid 
reached into his, his coat and he pulled out something that, the way this guy described it, no doubt exaggerating a little bit, was something the size of a paper towel tube that was like a big fatty. And, uh, and he's an old speaker and he said, I don't know if you kids call them fatties anymore, but a fatty. Uh, and he said, he pulled this out, he said, this, this, you're telling me that I can still smoke this, like I'll have to stop smoking this in order to come to Christ. And he said, let me, let me explain something to you. Do you clean yourself off before you get a shower? And the kid said, like, look at him and said, no. And he goes, like, like, you don't go into the sink and clean yourself off entirely and rub your face and, you know, get completely clean before you hop in the shower? And he's like, no, of course not. You go to the shower to get clean. And he goes, that's why you come to Jesus, to get clean. The barrier for entry was already paid when Christ died on the cross. As Christians, we need to not add additional barriers that our Christ didn't even place onto the gift of grace. That is not our job and that is not our role. Our role is to give people and to share with people the good news of this gift. As many people as humanly possible, through the way we live, through the way that we react to things, through our life as a testimony, through the words that sometimes we say, our job is to love and show compassion to as many people as possible. And in a world so devoid of love and acceptance, that is a testimony that's going to cry out louder than anything else that a church or a building or a, a whatever organized religion can possibly do. We're called to just show love in the same way that Christ himself showed love. And in doing that, maybe other people will hear the calling on their heart to come to Christ and we'll, we'll join in and be able to experience the glory of grace themselves. And as individuals that when we look at other people out there in society, it's also important for us to understand that these aren't individuals who are living in a way that, you know, is like, you know, that we should look at them and say they're a detestable person or that something about them is absolutely ugly and, you know, that that's something that we should be, you know, uh, repelled from. Our duty and our responsibility is to be with those people who are sick, to be with the dirty, to be willing ourselves to get our hands a little bit dirty, but in doing that to help them know that they, that they don't have to get clean before getting in the shower, that they don't have to get holy before coming to Christ. Christ offers grace to the sinners. And so if that's the case, we should be focused, we should be compassionate, we should be driven to reach as many sinners as humanly possible. Because even while we still flatter ourselves as good, proper, church-going Christians, we are still sinners ourselves. And regardless of what we do or how many times we do it, Christ's grace is sufficient. Let's pray. Father God, as individuals who are, who are here in the church and who are who are hearing your word, we, we pray that you would help us to be able to put any, any ideas or biases or preconceived notions we may have about the Bible over to the side and help us to, to be able to read your word for, for what it is. Help us to be able to hear the truth of your grace and the truth of your gospel and help us to be able to share that with other people around us. We live in a society that's been so blessed to be able to have so much Christianity and so much of you intertwined within 
our traditions and our culture, but along with that comes a lot of baggage of things that we've created. Help us, God, to seek you first and to not to sit here and listen to some random thing a pastor says or listen to some random thing that uh, you know we've maybe heard uttered a thousand times before, but help us to actually be able to see the significance and the impact of what you did on the cross through the, the world around us, through the testimony that you gave us in the Bible, and help us, Lord, to be convicted to be individuals that are focused more on the compassion that we, ha- we share towards other people than we are on the, the piety that other people mimic. Help us to be more, more concerned about our, our own misgivings and our own missteps than those of others. And help us to be more willing to roll up our own sleeves and to get dirty so that we can reach and embrace those people that that need to get cleaned by you. Help us, God, to be more than religion, to be more than stereotypes. Help us to be something that truly looks different in this world and that looks a lot more like you. We pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.